morning comes from Romans chapter 9, verse 22 through the end of the chapter, and then I will read the first five verses of the following chapter. Hear the word of God. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with patience vessels prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared for glory beforehand, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out regarding Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the seas, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they do not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight for You are our rock and our redeemer. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John stand in a Jewish courtroom in Jerusalem. The pair had been arrested the day before and are now called to give an account of their actions. What was their crime? Well, we read about it in Acts chapter 3. As Peter and John We're going into the temple, a crippled beggar asks for a coin, and Peter tells him that they don't have any money, but then Peter says to the cripple, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man was healed on the spot. And he went dancing into the temple and praising God, and many people saw this miracle and were talking about it. But now the following day, 
After spending the night locked up, Peter and John find themselves on trial, standing before the most important religious leaders in Jerusalem. There is no way to deny that a miracle has happened, but the leaders are interested in squashing unauthorized religious activity. And so they ask Peter and John for an explanation. By what power or by what name did you do this? And Peter replies, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by Him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given unto man by which we must be saved. Sometimes when you ask a question, you regret having asked it when you hear the answer. I think that's how the temple leaders felt when Peter gave them an answer that they probably didn't want to hear. Several things to notice in Peter's little speech. First, the miracle happens in the name of Jesus. It's not been so long since Jesus was crucified. The Jewish leaders haven't forgotten about him. And here the name of the man that they hoped would quietly disappear is invoked in this remarkable and much talked about miracle. Second, Peter points the finger directly at the religious leaders and says, You crucified them. It was, of course, the Romans who actually did the dirty work, but Peter points to the leaders of the temple as the ones who were morally responsible for the execution of Jesus, even if Roman soldiers were the ones who drove the nails. Third, Peter asserts that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, I have no idea what the Jewish religious leaders made of that claim, but it must have been very alarming. The kind of thing that makes your blood run cold. Everyone knew that Jesus had died, and now Peter is saying that Jesus is alive and that he's been raised from the dead by God. It's scary business. Especially if you're the one who killed him in the first place. This is revenge of the zombies kind of stuff. Fourth, Peter, off the top of his head, quotes an interesting piece of Psalm 118, a Psalm of David, which says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In Psalm 118, David uses this rejected stone as an image of himself and his kingship. David, just a humble shepherd boy overlooked by the builders of Israel, becomes by God's own plan the cornerstone, the capstone, the most important stone in the entire building. That's what David says about himself and his reign. And Peter applies those words to Jesus. Who, of course, is the descendant of David and who is the final and eternal occupant of the throne of David. The religious leaders of Jesus' time 
overlooked Jesus. They disregarded him. They rejected him. But God has made him the cornerstone of his own eternal kingdom. It's a stinging rebuke. That those who should have been in the know somehow missed out on the biggest news of the century. Right there under their noses. The Messiah shows up and they're too dull to see. They reject him. They cast him out. They conspire to have him killed. And then, surprise, surprise, it turns out, in fact, that he's the anointed one. The fifth thing that Peter says about Jesus is that he is the one and only path of salvation. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now my job this morning is to preach a passage from Paul's letter to the Romans. But I want to get to Paul by way of Peter. This speech of Peter that I read for you from Acts chapter 4 was delivered within months of Jesus' crucifixion. What Peter said in front of the Jewish religious leaders was not the result of long speculation or theological development. It was not the result of a rift between the church and the synagogue that would later appear. What we see in Peter's speech is a kind of off-the-cuff, spur-of-the-moment, first-impression truth-telling, a kind of raw and undigested gospel. Peter's been hauled up on charges of healing a crippled man on the steps of the temple. The temple leaders want to know by what authority Peter has done this because doing this has been a challenge to their authority. They are the keepers of the temple after all. And so Peter explains in a way that must have been very embarrassing for those religious leaders. Peter says two very important things about the identity of Jesus. Number one. Some people got it completely wrong. Some people completely misunderstood Jesus. Some people got it all backwards when it comes to Jesus. Peter says that Jesus is like the stone rejected by the builders. The stone that turns out, in the end, to be the most important stone of all. Surrounding an ancient building site, there would be... All kinds of stones lying about. And the stonemason would go amongst the stones looking for the exact stone that he needed. The right color, the right shape, the right size, the right consistency. He would pick his stone and set it then in just the right place. And having done that, he would go back to find another stone. But Jesus was the stone that kept being overlooked. Jesus was the stone that was rejected because somehow Jesus doesn't fit into what the builders had in mind. As it turns out, Jesus is the most important stone in the building, the cornerstone, the capstone, the keystone, a complete reversal from what the builders had imagined. Important point number one, some people got it completely wrong when it comes to Jesus. Important point number two, there is no salvation outside of Jesus. Now that's serious business. Especially for the people that Peter is speaking to. If anyone was in the salvation business, it was the religious authorities who ruled the temple. And Peter is telling them 
that there is no salvation outside of this man whom they rejected and killed. Ouch! So what does this have to do with Paul? Paul is writing his large and theologically complicated letter to the church in Rome, a church which consists of both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in roughly equal numbers. Paul, the most important Christian missionary of all times, is himself a loyal Jew. He's proud of his heritage. He's proud of the special place his people have in God's plan of salvation for the world. To the Jews were given the prophets and the law. To the Jews were given the covenants and the Messiah. And Paul recognizes the unique and unreplaceable position of the children of Israel in God's eternal plan. But Paul also has to face a very real puzzle, a very personal puzzle. If the Jewish nation has such a special place in God's plan, why have so many individual Jews rejected Jesus? And why has the central religious institution of the Jewish nation, the temple with all of its bureaucracy, why has it rejected Jesus and even had him killed? And, on the other hand, Since the resurrection of Jesus, why have so many of these filthy Gentiles been flooding in to the church? As Paul points out in Romans 9, 30 and 31, the Jews worked hard pursuing God's righteousness. These were good people. These were Bible-reading, Bible-obeying people, and yet so many of them are excluded from Christ in whom there alone there is salvation. While on the other hand, these Gentiles who had lived a totally godless life, all of a sudden are being welcomed into the family of God with open arms and they're receiving salvation. How can this be? To solve this puzzle, Paul draws Two distinctions. First, the distinction between national salvation and individual salvation. And second, the distinction between salvation by works and salvation by faith. So let's talk first about national salvation versus individual salvations. We Christians usually think of salvation as a personal matter. I am saved when I take Jesus into my heart. I am saved when I repent and make a decision to follow Christ. I am saved when I believe in Jesus and confess Him as Lord. I, 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 I. To a fault. Christians think of salvation in purely individualistic and personal terms. And it is true, there is a personal aspect to God's salvation. God does regenerate and redeem individuals. But the Bible also speaks about corporate salvation or national salvation. The Bible speaks about God preserving a people... Not just persons. God promised to protect and to preserve the children of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, as a nation, as a distinct people. And through all of the centuries, 
in ways that boggle the imagination, God has preserved His people, the people of the law, the people of the covenants. And today those people even control a portion of the land that God set aside for them. The miraculous preservation of the Jewish nation, in spite of all the hatred they have faced through long centuries, is a testimony of the trustworthiness of God's promises. But while God promised to preserve the children of Israel as his own special nation, that doesn't mean that God promised to protect and preserve each and every member of that nation. Many, perhaps most, were lost along the way. Many, perhaps most, died. But the nation lives on. So how can citizens of a nation die, but the nation live on? Think about two nations at war with each other. The victorious nation lives on even if many of its citizens died in battle, while the defeated nation ceases to exist, even if many of its citizens survived the war. Long ago, God made many promises, including promises of preservation and salvation to the children of Israel, to the descendants of Abraham, as a national corporate entity. But that nation... That corporate body has always consisted of the survivors, the faithful remnant left over. Always in its history, the prophets of Israel have understood warfare and famine and troubles in the nation to be God's rod of chastisement. When the nation was righteous, the nation prospered. When the nation sinned, the nation suffered. But though God repeatedly chastised his people, God never destroyed them. And he never allowed them to be wiped off the face of the earth, even though there have always been people, even as recently as a couple of weeks ago in Pittsburgh, there have always been people who say all Jews must die. The salvation and the preservation of the children of Israel as a distinct and identifiable nation is an unparalleled miracle. And it's a testimony to God's faithfulness to his own covenant promises. And the perverse and insane persistence of anti-Semitism is proof that Satan's hatred for anything or anyone that God loves, that that hatred goes unabated. And it will go on unabated until Jesus returns and Satan receives his final doom. There is a distinction between individual salvation and national salvation. God repeatedly promised to save the children of Israel as a people, as a corporate national body. But he never promised to save each and every individual descendant of Abraham. Israel is... And always has been the survivors, the faithful remnant whom God preserves for God's own purposes. Now, we also have this distinction between individual and national salvation within the church, although we don't often recognize this, even though Christians are so very focused on individual salvation. When Jesus says to Peter, 
In Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus is making a promise that the church as a corporate entity, as a group of people, will never disappear. No matter what kind of persecution comes against the church, the church will survive. No matter how sinful church people are in conducting the affairs of the church, the church will go on. But just because the church will always go on, that doesn't in any way mean that every individual church member or every individual congregation or every individual denomination will go on. It doesn't mean that at all. Individual church members can fall away from the faith and be lost. Individual congregations can fail to proclaim the gospel and close their doors. Individual denominations can lose sight of why they exist and dwindle down to nothing. But the church of Jesus Christ will go on. If we don't preach the gospel... Someone else will. And the church will go on with us or without us. Jesus Christ builds his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we have the choice as to whether or not we're going to get on board with what it is that Jesus is doing. But let's be clear, if a church closes, if a denomination fails, it's not because the gospel has failed. It's because the individuals who control those churches, who run those denominations, have walked away from the gospel. We live in a funny time. In that the church is declining in the places where white people live. But it's increasing in places where brown people live. For a long time, white people got used to the idea that mission work was all about sending white people to go talk to brown people. But now that situation has reversed. Africa and Asia and Latin America are sending (coughs) missionaries, thanks be to God, to the poor, benighted, pagan, atheists living in North America and in Europe. And even as Europe and North America re-paganizes, the church goes on. The church continues to grow and to prosper The church continues to add to its numbers every day because the gates of hell will never prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. (coughs) That's a kind of corporate salvation. Even if there are many individuals lost along the way, do you see this difference between individual salvation and corporate salvation? Paul recognizes Israel has always been the faithful remnant. He recognizes that the people of God have always been the survivors. This is also true of the church, which is a continuation of, but not a replacement of, the people of God. Many, but not all Jews, many, but not all Jews in Paul's times became followers of Jesus. Paul asks about the fate of those Jews in his time who don't follow Jesus. And his answer is that Israel, corporate Israel, is always the faithful remnant. 
the group of survivors the Lord has preserved for himself. Now, there's a peculiar twist in the history of the church in that people who were not part of the original promise, people who were not descendants of Abraham, are invited into the covenants. That's most of us here this morning, uh, those of us who are Gentiles. Paul quotes Hosea with an interesting twist. He says, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And Paul applies that to the Gentiles. Gentiles who were not God's people before Jesus. God will now call those my people. God will now invite them to be included into the promises that are made to Abraham. From the very beginning, God had promised Abraham that all nations would be blessed through him. And that promise received a special fulfillment in the opening of the church to people like us, to Gentiles. Before Jesus, there had always been foreigners and Gentiles who would join the Jewish nation, but never large numbers. Just ones and twos here and there. For example, Ruth who's one of the ancestors of David, one of the ancestors of Jesus. Ruth was not a Jew. She was born a Moabite woman. But she chose to begin to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And she was welcomed into the people of God. And she became a partaker in the covenant promises of God. After Jesus, however, this trickle of Gentiles flowing into the family of God becomes a torrent And in Paul's letter to the Romans, we begin to see this becoming the source of conflict between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And we begin to see the beginning of a crisis of identity for the many, many Jews who did follow Jesus. Not long after Paul writes this letter to the Romans, the world, pagan, Christian, Jewish, The world begins to view Jewish and Christian as being terms for opposite communities. Not long after Paul writes this letter to the Romans, Jews who follow Jesus begin to fear losing their distinct national identity as the church is overwhelmed by outsiders, by Gentiles. Paul identifies the church, all followers of Christ together, both Jews and Gentiles as the corporate continuation of the promises made to Abraham, promises made always to a faithful remnant. In Romans 9, 23 and 24, Paul identifies the faithful remnant after Jesus as being, quote, the vessels of mercy which God has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called. Not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Okay, let me wrap up this sermon by touching on a final distinction that Paul makes in order to explain himself and to his readers how so many of his fellow Jews are not included among the faithful followers of Jesus and have seemingly been replaced by a bunch of crazy former pagans. Where did these Jews go wrong? Where did the Gentiles go right? The distinction is between a salvation by works and a salvation by faith. Paul admits that the Jews, his brothers and sisters, are zealous for God. But 
he says that they're ignorant in that they try to establish their own righteousness and do not submit to the righteousness of God. The strange thing about the gospel is that it reveals two things. Number one, that no one, not even very zealous, strict Jews meet the demand of God's law that no one, not even zealous, strict Jews are righteous in God's eyes. But that, too, God reveals a new path to righteousness, which is by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life, and by faith in him, his record of purchase of perfect righteousness can become ours. Following Christ means abandoning our own attempts at righteousness. Following Christ means admitting that we are not righteous ourselves, and that can be a bitter pill for some of us to swallow, particularly those of us who have a powerful need to always be right. The Gentiles who didn't pursue a righteousness of their own, but received the righteousness of Christ in faith, find themselves grafted into the people of God and into the promises of Abraham. But Jews, who during this time that Paul is writing in, the Jews who continued to try to establish their own righteousness and rejected an offer of imputed righteousness by faith in Jesus, found themselves excluded from the household of God. They found themselves cut off from the promises of Abraham. Jesus, who is the cornerstone of God's plan of salvation, becomes a stumbling block for anyone, Jew or Gentile, who seeks to establish his own righteousness. Faith in Jesus is not possible for people who have placed their faith in themselves. So where does this lead us? God offers us in Jesus Christ a fresh way to approach Him and to be in a relationship with Him. Without Jesus, we are lost and we are separated from God because there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In Jesus... We are offered the full righteousness of God, complete acceptance as a child of God, adoption within the household of God, grafting into all of the promises of Abraham, guarantees of our well-being now and for all eternity. But that offer in Christ comes with a price, a price that most are not willing to pay. That offer of Christ comes with this price that we turn away from our own claim to righteousness and that we admit that we are fallen sinners in desperate need of a Savior. We cannot be saved until we admit that we need to be saved. That's the rub for many people, for many people who seek to establish their own righteousness. And so this morning... As we close, I invite you, if you haven't done so already, to come to Jesus. To come to Him as the messed up, sinful, fallen, unrighteous person that you are. 
to come to Him and place your trust in Him, knowing that by faith in Him you will be welcomed as a member of the household of God and receive all of God's blessings. That's my prayer for you today. Let us pray. Father God, we honor you and we adore you. We thank you that your word is as true today as when the Apostle Paul wrote it so long ago. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that your word would find its place in our heart. I pray that you would continue to call us to yourself. I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would continue to convict us of our sin and convince us of our need for a Savior. Lord, I pray that if we are self-satisfied, that if we are self-righteous, that you would do us the favor of breaking us down so that we might be truly saved. For salvation comes in Christ alone. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen, amen, and amen.